Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. You can turn to Romans 12 in your Bibles. Do you know the word ecclesiology? If you don't, you do now. Use it in a sentence later. Impress your friends. Like all of the ology words that worked from the Greek language into the English language, you hear the word logia right in there. That means words, words about And so ecclesiology is words about the ecclesia. It's words about the church. And so we're going to continue talking this morning about what it is to be the church. Last week I began by asking you, who are we? And we are the church. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are Those people who worship and praise God, we are the people that God has drawn to himself for his own pleasure and his own praise. And so Romans 12 talks about ecclesiology, talks about what it is to be the church, how the church acts, how the church conducts itself, how we ought to behave when we're dealing with one another. And then as the chapter continues... Paul is then going to talk about how we ought to conduct ourselves out there in the unbelieving world. He's even going to talk about those who are opposed to Christianity. How should we deal with them? How should we operate when they are around? Now, as long as we're defining terms, let me define a little bit of who we are as GCA. Because I just used the word ecclesiology. The doctrines of grace, the five tulip doctrines, sometimes known collectively as the doctrine of grace, that is all about soteriology. There's another big word you can use to impress your friends. Soteriology means words about how people get saved. That is soteriology. Now, there is a segment of professing Christianity that concentrate solely on soteriology. That becomes the primary thing for them. Every message that they preach, every sermon that you hear from them is always about salvation, how people get saved. And if we were to be among any of those people who are sovereign grace people, if we were to hear any of them, we would agree. We would agree with everything they were saying. We would say, yes, that is how people get saved as a result of the sovereignty of God. We would agree with that. However, the Bible doesn't stop there. And here at GCA, even though we agree with the sovereign grace soteriology, We also agree with the biblical anthropology. Do you know what I mean by that? What does the Bible say about people? 
The Bible has a lot to say about human beings that were sinful, that were corrupt, that were fallen. The Bible says that. Okay, well, we also agree with that. We also agree with biblical Israelology. The Bible has a lot to say about Israel. The whole Old Testament is about Israel. Most of the New Testament is about Israel. And that's why here at GCA we spend a lot of time talking about Israelology as well. The Bible also talks about eschatology. And that's why here at GCA we talk about eschatology a lot. Eschaton, end things, words about end things. So we talk about that because a full quarter of the Bible is prophecy and is eschatologically based. And so if you don't talk about eschatology, you're missing a quarter of the Bible. If you don't talk about Israelology, you're missing so much of what the Bible collectively has to say. So what I'm saying is here at GCA... My job is to give you a biblical education and not just a theological education. I'm not just trying to teach you the soteriology, how people get saved, that came out of the Protestant Reformation. Even though I agree with all that, even though you and I would all agree that the soteriology that was developed in the Synod of Dort is what we all believe. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not of works. No man can boast. We agree with all of that. But then the Bible has all this other stuff to talk about. And that's why we talk about Israel. And that's why we talk about end times. And that's why we talk about the fact that we are all sinners. That, by the way, is called homardiology. And the biblical anthropology and what makes up human beings. We talk about all of that because my goal is not just to teach you the soteriology of the Reformation. My goal is to teach you the whole Bible. To give you a balanced biblical diet so that you're able to open the Bible at any place and understand what's going on. So that you understand the way that the Bible works, the way that the Bible presents itself. That's what we do here at GCA. And that's part of what makes us distinct from so many of the other professing Christian churches out there. We concentrate on teaching and we concentrate on what the Bible has to say. Because we believe, follow me here, because we believe that the Bible is the actual word of God. And if the Bible is the actual word of God... Well, then you're responsible for it. Once you know it, once you know what it says, then you're responsible to it. And chapter 12 of the book of Romans says an awful lot about you and how you should behave, how you should conduct yourself, what your attitude should be toward people within the church and people outside the church. And so as we read these things, the natural tendency is going to be for us to say, well, that's hard. That's difficult. I can't be like that. And the truth is, no, you couldn't. You couldn't be like that. 
were it not for the Holy Spirit of God, by the way, pneumatology, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you, you could never do the things that are required of you in Romans 12 or in the whole rest of the Bible. We are completely dependent on the Spirit of God indwelling us in order to inspire us and empower us to do the things that God requires of us. But if you have the Holy Spirit of God, evidenced by the fact that you have faith in the finished work of Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you, if you do belong to God, then you're not offended by God's word, you're in fact nourished by God's word, and you are, stop me when this is too obvious, instructed by God's word. And that's why what's being said here in Romans 12 is so very important. Now, what was that whole speech about? I'll tell you. There are far too many churches that because they concentrate on the soteriological parts of the Bible, how people get saved, because they just concentrate on that and it almost becomes a little niche for them, when they get to sections like Romans 12 that has to do with behavior, that has to do with how you conduct yourself, they don't even go there. They don't even touch that. They don't even read that because it's all about how people get saved. But the sections of the Bible about how people get saved are equally important as Romans 12, which is also the word of God, which is about how you are supposed to behave yourself because you've been saved. So I don't adhere to the notion that any part of the Bible can be truncated in favor of your pet doctrine. Just because you do adhere to the tulip doctrines of grace, it's not adequate to just concentrate on that to the exclusion of everything else. If you're excluding eschatology, you've excluded a quarter of the Bible. If you're excluding what we're about to read, ecclesiology, how the church ought to behave, how Christians themselves individually ought to behave, what you ought to think, how you ought to conduct yourself in this life. If you skip over that, then you're skipping over some of the most vital and important parts of the Bible. The Bible as a whole completely is our instruction manual for how we ought to live before God. Does that all make sense to you? Yes. It's good to have an overall biblical comprehension, which is why for all these years we've done nothing but teach books of the Bible so that we have a good overview of what the Bible actually says. And I think that's what the church is supposed to be doing. The church is supposed to be concentrating on what does the word of God say? And then adhering our thinking and our behavior and the way that we conduct ourselves within the church, adhering that to the word of God. Here, now I'm going to get controversial. Why not? Yeah, okay, I'll get controversial. For instance... Right now, within the larger church world, there is the ordination of women going on so that women can be pastors in the church. The Bible doesn't say that. That's just a fact. That's just a fact. It's a fact that churches these days are ordaining women, and it's a fact that the Bible says don't do that. 
So then who are you going to believe? Are you going to get together and take a vote and say, we as a group have decided that this is what we're going to do? Or do you go back to what the Bible says and say, well, we're going to do it the way the Bible says to do it because we actually believe it's the word of God. If the Bible says don't do it, and then you decide as a group that you're going to do it, that is tantamount to a denial of the authority of the Bible. You're saying, yes, it's kind of God's word, but at any point I can just decide for myself what I would rather do. Okay, now carry that example with you as we continue to look at chapter 12 of Romans because if you believe that this is the very word of God, then whatever it says about you, you are responsible to adhere to it, to respond to it the same way that the church is responsible to adhere to and respond to the very word of God. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, I'm trying to be very... I was going to use another big theological word. I'm trying to be very plain spoken, which is the opposite of the word I was going to use, which was pedag- <laughs> I was going to say I'm trying to be very pedagogical, and then you all would stare at me. It, it just means I'm trying to be very teacherly. I'm trying to spell these things out as clearly as I can because I want you to understand that what we read, you are responsible for or... You've set yourself up as the arbiter of truth. You have decided that you sit in judgment on the Bible. And when the Bible says things you don't like, you prefer your attitude, your opinion, your decision over what the word of God says. Which means you don't really think it's the word of God or you don't really think much of God or you think that your will is superior to the will of God. Does that make sense? Yes, Okay. So then chapter 12 of the book of Romans starts out saying, and we've been looking at this for a couple of weeks, I urge you, therefore, brethren, knowing everything that you know so far, knowing everything that Paul has spelled out so far in the book of Romans, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice. I keep emphasizing that point because the whole rest of the chapter is about what it looks like to present your body to God as a living and a holy sacrifice. I have emphasized to you that sacrifice all the way through the Old Testament meant death. If you sacrifice something, you killed it. You shed the blood of a sacrificial animal, and that animal died. Paul is now saying because Christ has come, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, because of the once-for-all sin offering being made and being accepted by God, now you and the way you live is a living sacrifice to God. But remember, it's still a sacrifice because some of the things we're going to be told, like bless those who curse you. That's really hard. That's really difficult to do. So how do we do it? By sacrifice. We sacrifice ourselves in order to do the things that God requires of us, and it does require sacrifice. But look at the other word, the other adjective that Paul used here. The sacrifice that we bring to God is not only living, but it is also holy sacrifice. What does the word holy mean? The word holy means separated, sanctified, 
set apart from worldliness for God's exclusive use. Gee, wouldn't you like to be that? Wouldn't you like to go through your life knowing I'm, I'm holy to God? I'm sanctified to God. I am separated from the world to God. Well, according to Paul here, how you walk, how you live, how you behave says that about you, that you are not only living for God as a living sacrifice, but that you are separated to God and for his exclusive use, and that's why you walk and talk and act the way you do. Present your bodies, a living and a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your, the NASB says, which is your spiritual service of worship, The word I've told you now is logikos. It's the word from which we get logic, logical, all those words. Paul is saying it is just reasonable. If God has saved you, if God has sacrificed his son for you, if God has reached down from the heavenly splendor that he has adorned himself in, if he's reached down to you, Wormy, little, scummy, little, stupid, little you. He, from his glorious throne, reached down and saved you. Well, then it's just logical. It's just reasonable that you would conduct your life in such a way that it glorifies him. That requires sacrifice. You're not going to be like the world. You're not going to act like the world. In fact, that's the next verse. It says, don't be conformed. To this world. Now he's not just saying don't be conformed to the way planet earth exists. He's not talking about the dusty ball. He's talking about the system of this world. The people of this world. The activity of this world. It's not difficult. You could be an atheist. And you will still see things in this world that make you shudder. You'll still see things in this world that you go... Well, that ain't right. You'll still see things in this world, even without a real God concept. You'll still see things in this world that you disagree with, that you have to say that that can't be right. That can't be the way it goes. Don't be, especially if you are a Christian, don't be conformed to all that. And it's really, really easy to be conformed to all that because you're bombarded with all that. You've been around all that. You see all that. You're inundated with all that to the extent where you start thinking that's natural. That's normal. That's what it is to be alive on planet Earth right now. Well, that's what it is to conform to this world. Paul says, don't do that. Rather be transformed. And I've told you that's the Greek word from which we get metamorphosis. Like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. You're going to be changed. Even though it is the same essential being, a change happens. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you're born again, if you've been born from above, if you've been born by the Spirit of God, I'm going to see how long I can hold this water and not actually drink it. (laughs) If you're going to be renewed then the Spirit of God has made all things new. So then consider yourself to be renewed by the Spirit of God and by the born-again experience. 
And based on that, transform yourself from the worldly version of you that once was. You used to be like the world. You used to be, according to Paul writing to the Ephesians, he says you were children of wrath just like everybody else. But now, but now you've been saved, but now you've been redeemed. Now you've been bought off the slave market of sin. Now you are different than the world, so don't act like the world. Don't behave, don't think, don't participate like the world. Don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. And the will of God is that which is good and that that is acceptable and that that is perfect. For through the grace that is given to me, Paul speaking, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sound judgment. And I've told you that that word means Sane, with a sane mind. In other words, if you're not thinking about the things of God, if you're not acting according to the things that God has revealed to you, you're insane. But to have a sane mind, to have sound, good, solid judgment, do that according to God who has allotted to everybody the measure of faith. For just as we have many members, and they are all one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many as one body in Christ and individual members of one another, that's what we're like. And there are gifts. We have been given gifts, charisma, that differ according to the grace that is given to us. Therefore, let us exercise those gifts for the benefit and the good of everybody. This is standard Pauline theology. It is Paul who taught us the deeper doctrine. It is Paul who taught us about election. Hang on, I'm going to have a drink so I can put this down. <laughs> it is Paul who taught us the doctrine of God's predestination. It's Paul who taught us about the electing grace of God, who chose people before the foundation of the world. It is Paul who taught us all that doctrine, but his response to all that doctrine is now live better. Now live like it. And this is standard Pauline theology. It's as much a part of the Pauline corpus as the doctrines of grace are. The doctrines of grace, in fact, I would argue, ought to result in the better behavior. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that if the doctrines of grace don't result in better behavior, you still don't understand the doctrines of grace. Because Paul combines the two. Paul says, this is how you are saved. Now, having been saved, be like this. In Ephesians 4, he writes, starting at verse 1, he says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. To walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. In other words, put up with each other. Within a church body, what collects us here is that we have a common belief, a common faith. 
And so we all come into the room together and we become the body of Christ here in Smyrna collectively together. But that doesn't mean that we necessarily get along with everybody. That we necessarily like everything about everybody else. And so Paul says, it's necessary that you work to be patient with each other, to lift each other up, to come alongside each other. And in that way, you walk worthy of the calling that you've been called to. So instead of with ego and brashness, instead have all humility and all gentleness. And with patience, show tolerance for one another in love, in agape, in sacrificial love. For instance, I'll talk about Kenneth here only because he made the mistake of sitting up front. Um, I like Kenneth. I like Kenneth a lot. So the next things I'm going to say, you just need to know. Kenneth and I get along fine, as far as I know. He may be holding a grudge. I don't know anything about that. But let's say Kenneth and I just don't get along. Let's say Kenneth and I rub each other wrong. What should be our inspiration to get over our differences? It can't be on the basis of our personalities. Because after all, (laughs) Kenneth, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) So it can't be on the basis of our personalities or our like for or enjoyment of each other. So there has to be something else that draws us to each other, that makes us cooperate within the body of Christ. Paul says that that unifying thing is that we share the same spirit. We both share the spirit of Christ. Christ died for Kenneth as much as he died for me. And so knowing that God held Kenneth in such high esteem, that he would send his son to die for Kenneth, and that Kenneth's name is also in the Lamb's Book of Life, that suddenly becomes the inspiration for me to overlook the fact that he's, you know, all Kennethy and stuff. So that, so that I can overlook all that in favor of the brotherhood that needs to exist between Christian brethren. So Paul would say intolerance. Show that tolerance. Demonstrate that tolerance, that patience for each other. And do it by love. And the word is agape. It means sacrificial love. Paul keeps saying it takes sacrifice. It takes work. It takes effort. So then put the work in. Put the effort in. Sacrifice. Don't be all me first. Don't be all egocentric. Do what is good for the person who needs your patience, love, and tolerance. Put the other person ahead of yourself. That's the Philippians 2 stuff. And then in verse 3 of Ephesians 4, Paul says, be diligent. Diligent. That means do the work. Don't be casual about it. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit In the bond of peace. Paul just said what I just elucidated. How are Kenneth and I going to get along? We're going to get along by tolerating each other. And then by putting in the work. Putting in the diligence to preserve the unity of the spirit. What is the unity of the spirit? 
he shares the same spirit I share. And so that unifying spirit of God within the two of us is what should bind us together despite whatever differences we might have in personality. So be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. There is one body, there's one church, there is one spirit, the Holy Spirit of God that indwells everybody within the church, all the body of Christ have that one spirit. And just as also you were called by God in one hope of your calling, we're all having the same hope. I hope the same thing Leon hopes. When it comes to this question of Christianity, we're all hoping the same thing. I'm hoping the same thing Steve's hoping. What are we all hoping? We're hoping for eternal life. We're all hoping that at the end of our lives, we have persevered. We have stayed with the faith. And that Christ is going to welcome us into his kingdom and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Boy, I I hope that. Don't you, Leon? I'd love to hear those words. Well, that's the common hope that we share. Therefore, our personal differences, our personality differences, don't really count. We should put up with each other. We should be tolerant of each other in humility and in meekness because there is only one body of Christ. There is only one spirit. We were all called in the one hope That same hope of our calling, there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, there is one faith, there is one baptism, there is one God and Father who is over all of us and through all and in all, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gift of Christ resulted in the grace that saved us. So knowing that about us, knowing that Kellen and I are both saved by the same grace, the same Christ died for both of us, we both have the same Holy Spirit inside us, why shouldn't we work and put up with whatever we got to put up with in order to diligently keep the peace within the body of Christ? So this is standard Pauline theology. Now he says in Romans 12, That within the body, even though there are very many different working parts, even though there's a Steve and a Leon and a Kellen and a Kenneth, even though there are different people and different personalities within the church, nevertheless, God has given every one of us a gift. He's given us an ability so that we can serve within the church and that we serve each other within the church. So that we're continuing to strive for unity. Here's the way Paul puts it back in Romans 12. We, verse 5, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of each other. And since we all have gifts, charisma, that differ according to the grace that is given to us, Let us exercise those gifts accordingly. So uh, by the Spirit of God, God 
building his own church. Christ said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. As Christ is in the enterprise of building his church, he has taken certain individuals and he has put them into certain bodies of believers. And he has put them into those church gatherings for the good of the collective body, not for the good of the individual. You don't have whatever gift you have so that people can look at you and go, ooh, oh, you. No, the gift you have, you have for the good of us collectively, all of us. Now, again, that's standard Pauline theology. When you look at 1 Corinthians 12, which is Paul's great treatise about the charisma, about gifts that have come from God, he says there are a variety of gifts. This is 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 4. There's a variety of these gifts, these charisma, but it's the same spirit. So notice that he's talking about unity and diversity. There's a diversity of gifts. Not everybody has the same gift. Not everybody has the same ability. But every ability and gift that you have is for the good of the unity of the collective. Now there are varieties of gifts. But it's the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries I think I told you recently, that's diakonia, the same word that he uses here in Romans 12. There's a variety of ministries, but it's the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects. In other words, how those gifts are used and what the result of those gifts is. There's a variety there. And yet it is the same God who works in all things in all persons. But to each one of you is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So whether you're reading out of Ephesians, whether you're reading out of 1 Corinthians, whether you're reading out of Romans, this is standard Pauline theology that God gives gifts to his people for the good of the collective body. It's not about you. It's still about the body of Christ, the raising up of, and the edification of the body of Christ. Romans 12. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, let us exercise them accordingly. That phrase, let us exercise them accordingly, in most of your translations, will be in italics that was added by the translator in order to create clarity here. But if your gift is to prophesy, which I told you last week, is to speak under inspiration, well then speak, the NASB says, in proportion to his faith. It's the word analogia in the Greek. And I told you last week that it's actually a definite article, to the faith. So I think what Paul is really saying here is, if you prophesy, if you speak for God, if you speak under inspiration, if you're speaking the word of God, then do it analogous to the faith. The faith is already laid out. The faith is already defined. The faith is already written in the book. We already know what the faith is. And so if you speak for God, if you preach for God, if you speak to other people about God, if you speak under inspiration, then do it analogous to what the faith is. In other words, don't make stuff up. 
You don't get to say, oh, I got a word from God, and he told me to tell you, oh, boy. That never goes well. After those words, whatever comes next never goes well. If you're going to prophesy within the body, then make sure that you do it analogous with the faith. If your job is service, that's the diakonia word. That's the ministry word. If your gift is service, well, then concentrate on your serving. If your gift is teaching, he who teaches, let him then concentrate on teaching. He who exhorts, I've told you that means to come alongside other people, to help people through difficulty, to help people along in their faith. The one who exhorts will then concentrate on your exhortation. He that gives, give with liberality. He that leads, lead with diligence. He who shows mercy, do it with cheerfulness. And let love be without hypocrisy. That means without pretending, without putting on a mask as if you're actually doing it. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And that's the point at which we read Philippians 2. And that takes us to the end of what you learned last week. That means that everything I've said so far this morning was in fact introduction. And doesn't count against my time. So that's a good deal, by the way. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Let's start there, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another. That's exactly what Philippians 2 said. To look on the things of others, don't just look on the things that are yours. And to esteem others as better than yourself. But then look at verse 11, it says... Not lagging behind in diligence. We just read that. Paul likes this concept of be diligent. Be diligent to keep the unity of the faith. Be diligent, fervent in spirit. That's a word for heat, for boiling over. And then by being diligent, by concentrating on these things, by making sure that you're showing love for someone else, By making sure that you're doing, walking, behaving in a Christian way. By doing all that diligently and with fervency. He says that's how you're serving the Lord. Okay, that's really interesting. Because up until now, Paul has been saying, this is how you deal with each other. This is how you serve each other. This is how you look after each other. And now Paul has tied that together with the way you look after each other serves the Lord. So, do you want to serve God? Do you want to serve the Lord? The kurios, the master, do you want to serve that one? Well, in order to properly serve him, to biblically serve him, in order to serve him according to what he says you ought to be and act like, then you need to be diligent to keep the bonds of peace within the body, and you need to be diligent and fervent in looking out for one another. I mean, this is not just a casual thing. This is not, gee, I hope it works out. I hope it all goes well. That looked painful. Good luck to you. Bye-bye now. That's not the way to do it. You can't do it casually. You have to look for 
look out for one another and look for opportunities to serve each other. You have to be diligent in doing it. Not just resting on your laurels, not just thinking, well, I've been good in the past. Instead, you have to constantly be fervent in spirit. And that is how you serve the Lord. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that, that sounds difficult. <laughs> you, you just described something that's really going to be kind of hard for me to do. I mean, I'm a nice guy. I try to help people. I help where I can. But you're telling me, be diligent. Look for opportunities. Be fervent. That, that's going to be difficult for me. Yeah, well, that's why it's called sacrifice. That's also why it's called service. You're serving the Lord in the way that you are behaving toward one another. But Paul doesn't stop there. As you're serving the Lord, not lagging behind in diligence, as you're fervent in your spirit, then you look forward to the things that God has already promised you. This mutual hope that we've talked about, this anticipation of what's coming, this looking forward to everything that God has promised you. He says, then we rejoice in hope. Collectively, we're rejoicing in the hope that's laid in front of us. But then we're persevering in tribulation. It's that same Greek word, thalipsis. That means in this world, you're going to have difficulty. You're going to have pressure. You're going to have squeezing. You're going to have a hard time in in this world, on this planet, life is not going to be always rosy. It's not going to be all kumbaya and rainbows and sunshine and the bluebird of happiness on your shoulders. Every once in a while, life is going to get really, really tough. And when that happens, he says, you persevere. When it's good, you rejoice. When you're hoping and you're looking forward, you're happy. And when it goes hard, you hang on and you keep pushing through it. In your joy, in your rejoicing over hope, don't lose sight of Christ as the center of your hope. But in your persevering, in your tribulation, don't lose sight of the fact that Christ is your perseverance. He is your joy, but he is also the reason why you hang on to the faith no matter how difficult it becomes. How many times have you heard me define faith as believing that the word of God is more true than your circumstances? Your circumstances in life are going to try your faith. Your circumstances in life are going to make you sometimes think, uh, the Bible can't be true because look what I'm going through. Or where is God in all this? Or if God loved me, I wouldn't be going through this. And so it's going to try your faith. Paul says persevere in that tribulation. And then the same way that you're persevering, the same way that you are holding on to, the same way that you are working through this lifetime with that kind of perseverance, with that kind of heat, with that kind of devotion, he says be devoted to prayer. And I'll tell you now, I know this from experience. The only way you're going to get through the troubles of this life is to be devoted to prayer. And God knows that. 
God knows, by the way, God knows how to drive you to your knees. Amen. He knows that trouble will drive you to your knees quicker than welfare will. When everything's going good, when everything's going fine, that's not when you're on your knees praying. That's not when you're in your closet saying, please, God. You're not doing that when everything's going good. When everything's going fine, you're busy thinking, self-made man. Dig me. Look at what I'm doing. I'm going great over here. You know, if you had the kind of faith I had, you'd be happy too. I'm doing great. That's just our natural tendency to think like that. And God knows that. And he's going to drive that out of you. And he's going to drive you back to your dependence on him. And the quickest, best, most effective way to do that is to throw some trouble on you. And he will happily throw trouble on you if it will bring you back to your dependence on him. So then, when it's good, rejoice. When it's difficult, persevere. But in all those things, devote yourself to prayer. Only prayer is going to get you through the good times and the bad times. Paul says, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. I know how to be full. I know how to suffer lack. And I have found in all these things to be content. And his contentment came from knowing that God was in control of all these things. Which includes the being full. Which includes abounding. In my life I have seen people destroyed by the difficulties of life. But I've seen just as many people destroyed by having it too good. People who have it so good that they don't need God. Jesus said it. Well, men don't seek a physician. People who are doing fine don't look for God. It is an act of God's love and his mercy and his grace for him to bring the trouble into your life in order to drive you to your dependence on him. That's just good of God to do for you. We start thinking, well, there's all this trouble in my life. God must not love me anymore. Now, I think that's when God's loving you the most because he's making sure that you're connected to him. You understand? Yes. So then rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation, and be devoted to prayer, contributing, giving to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality, practicing hospitality. You know, my dad used to say, He'd been to so many doctors, he used to say, why do you think they call it practicing medicine? (laughs) Apparently they don't know it. They're just practicing. That's not what this word means. The Greek word means as a way of life. The way that we would say that George here practices law. He's a lawyer. What is he? He does it every day. He has a law practice. Okay, that's the same way the word is being used here Practice hospitality. Do it constantly. Do it as a means of life. Do it as a way of living before God. Be hospitable to people. Contribute to the needs of the saints. If you see somebody with a need, fill it. Don't look for somebody else to fill it. Don't bring it to the church and say, hey, that person over there has a need. If you have the capability, if you have the ability to help somebody, go and help that person because that's what it is to practice 
that kind of generosity and hospitality. And then suddenly at verse 14, I think we're all being quite agreeable so far. We're all going, yes, I agree with that. That's good for the body. That's good for the church. Yes, the body of the church ought to take care of each other, and they ought to lift each other up. They ought to come alongside each other. They ought to be generous to each other. We can sacrifice for each other. And then verse 14 comes out of left field and says, bless those who persecute you. Uh-oh. Oh, that's a tougher one. I was okay with the whole getting along with Kenneth thing. But now, what about the persecutors? What about the people who persecute Christianity, who persecute the church? What about the people who hate you because of your profession of faith? What about those who really don't want you in the marketplace of ideas because you're like a great big red flashing neon sign that says Christ is alive and God is a judge? And they don't want to be around you if that's the case. And they begin to persecute you. Paul says, bless, speak well of. And then just so that you don't think it was a typo. Actually, he was writing on papyra. So that you don't think it's a papyro. So that you don't think, no, he didn't mean bless. Obviously, his pen slipped and I misread it as bless. I don't know. It's not bless. He says it again. Bless. And curse not, because he knows the tendency is to curse. He knows the tendency is when somebody comes against you and against your faith and against Christianity, the desire is to go attack those people. He says, don't do it. Bless those people. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And be of the same mind Toward one another. Do not be haughty. Do not be conceited. Associate with the lowly. And do not become wise in your own estimation. How many times now has Paul said, get over yourself. Get over your ego. Get over your high estimation of who you think you are. And associate with the lowly. Just because somebody's poor. Just because somebody's ill-educated just because somebody hasn't had the advantages you've had in life is no reason to look down on them, especially if they also belong to the same Christ who saved you. Well, then all the more reason for you to associate with the lowly and not become wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Wow, that's a tough one. No, I'm going to tell you right now, if you're evil to me, I'm being evil on you. If you're you're mean to me, my tendency, my, my temper is such that I want to be evil right back at you. And yet Paul says here that we are supposed to be different. And that's really different. That's very different than the world. And that's what he's getting at. Be different than the world. Don't act like the world. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And instead, when people treat you badly, bless them. Speak well of them. This is not unique to Paul. This is Jesus' own teaching. This is red letter stuff. Matthew 5, starting at verse 43, Jesus said, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor 
and hate your enemy. Yep, that's what the law said. The law said that you were to love your neighbor, but then those who weren't part of Israel, you weren't to even affiliate with them, don't intermarry with them. I say to you, Jesus speaking says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Because he, God, causes his son, the sun in the sky, the sun that brings crops, the sun that brings warmth. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus' whole point is God knows. And if anybody knows, God knows. God knows who the sinners and the saints are. God knows who he's chosen and who he hasn't. God knows way in advance who's headed for heaven and who's not. God knows that. And yet, even though there are enemies of God living on planet Earth, he gives them food. He sends them sunshine. He sends them rain. He's kind to them so that if that's the way your father is and you're trying to reflect your father, how should you be? You should be the same way. You should be able to bless those that persecute you. You should be able to do as Jesus says here, to pray for those who persecute you so that you can be sons of your father who is in heaven. And then starting at verse 46, Jesus asked this question. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Okay, my wife, by all indications, I might be assuming a few things here, but by all indications, my wife loves me. And I'm happy for this. And I love my wife. Pretty good, huh? (laughs) No, there's no reward to that. Jesus says there, there, there's no extra attaboys coming your way just because you love those that love you. He says anybody can do that. In fact, he goes on and says, do not even tax collectors do the same? The worst of the people in the society within Judaism were the tax collectors who were collecting taxes from the Jews to give to the Romans. And so tax collectors were widely hated, and yet Jesus said, look, even tax collectors are capable of loving those that love them. So you don't get any great reward because you love those who love you. If you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than anybody else? Do not even the Gentiles, the non-Jews, don't they do the same? They greet those who are like them. They greet their own brethren. Therefore, be perfect, be complete, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. So how are you to be perfect the way your heavenly Father is perfect? Well, he gives his son and his reign and food to the just and the unjust. Now you be the same way. Luke 6 picks up the same idea starting in verse 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. But I say to you, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. 
Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other cheek also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks you, and whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back that same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now do you get some sense of where Paul would get this theology of bless those who persecute you? That's teaching directly from Jesus. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And then at the second half of verse 17 here, the NASB says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. The Greek word there, and it's got one of those Greek diphthongs in it, so it's a little more difficult for me to wrap my tongue around. Pronoeo is, is a really interesting word because it has that word pro on the front of it, which means ahead of time, in advance. And the rest of the word means to look out for other people, to maintain other people. So the whole word means look out for other folks in advance. Plan to look out for other people. Make this your way of life. Don't just walk through life waiting to see if maybe God will put somebody in your path. When you start your day each day, think ahead. Plan to be this way. Plan to be helpful, to maintain others. Paul puts it like this. Plan ahead, respect, look out for plan to take care of what is right in the sight of all men. Again, really, really interesting. It's easy for any of us to act real Christian-y this morning in this room. Kellen's doing it right now. It's real easy for us to act real Christian-y when we're among Christians, right? Because after all, it's expected of us. We're expecting each other to act a certain way, especially after everything I'm saying to you right now. Especially after everything you've just seen in the Bible, of course you're going to behave a certain way while you're in this room. But then what about when you leave the room? What about when you're on the job? What about when you're out there with your family? Then how are you going to be? Paul says, plan ahead to look out for others and to do what is right 
in the sight of all men. It means all the time. That means no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, if you're on the job, if you're with your family, if you're just dealing with a stranger on the street, if you're dealing with the checkout person at the grocery store, among all people, make sure that you have started your day by planning ahead to look out for other people. That's Paul's approach. Now, by the way, that sounds really, really diligent. That sounds really, really difficult. That sounds like something that we natural human beings just would not do. And that's why it's called sacrifice. That's why we're told at the beginning to walk in such a way that we present our bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice to God by the way we behave by the way we act, so that we are not conformed to this world, so that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, so that we can walk through this life in such a way that people see in us a difference from the rest of the world, so that they will ask about the hope that is within us, so that we do have the opportunity to tell them about Christ, to give a defense for the hope that lays within us. The clock says, I'm done. I refuse to give up. (laughs) If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. A moment ago, he said to do what is right in the sight of all men. And now he said, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So wherever you are, whoever you're dealing with, then you should be the peacemaker. Jesus talked about blessed are the peacemakers. It is a blessed way to be in this lifetime, to be able to bring that cessation, that stopping of againstness, to bring peace to people, to bring a settled feeling of well-being to people, that you are generous to people, that you are kind to people, that you are patient with people. That brings peace to people. And here Paul says, not just within the church, but with all men. Everywhere you go, in everything you do, in every encounter you have, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with everybody. As much as you can possibly do it, be diligent as much as it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. And never take your own revenge, beloved, But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says God. Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. Okay, so big concept here. Are we pretty confident that God knows everything and everyone? Yes. Okay. So then does God know who his enemies are? Yes. Yes. Is he able to judge his enemies? Oh, yes. Is he able to pour out his wrath and vengeance on his enemies? Yes. Okay. You, are you able to pour out your wrath and vengeance in the same way that God can do? No. No. So then Paul says, look, God's got it. The thing that holds us back from being at peace with all men, the thing that holds us back from blessing those who curse us, 
The thing that holds us back from being kind and generous to other people is usually our sense of self, our sense of ego, our sense of pride, our sense of if you come up against me, I'm going to fight back against you. That sense of my own vengeance, I'm going to pour out my own anger. Well, now you've made me angry. And now that you've made me angry, you deserve my wrath. That, that's what keeps us from being able to do the things that Paul says we ought to do, the way that we ought to behave, the way that we ought to walk. And so Paul now gives us the inspiration and the understanding for why we shouldn't be like that, for why we should be at peace with all men, for why we should walk through this life in kindness and reconciling people and helping people and being at peace. He says, vengeance is coming to those people. When you're good to those people, when you're kind to those people, when you help those people, don't think that they're getting away with anything because vengeance is going to find them, but it's God's vengeance that's going to find them, and that is much more effective than your vengeance. You, you're not God. Is anybody here shocked by that? You're not like God. God's not like you, and God will take vengeance on his enemies. Your job since you're not God, is to be good to people, be different than the world, be at peace with all men as much as is possible, and then you, being different than the world, have the opportunity to demonstrate and to proclaim the goodness of the God that saved you. That is your job, is to demonstrate God in this world, to be the emissary of God in this world. Your job is not to pour out vengeance. That's God's job. He keeps that for himself, and he's going to do it, so don't you pretend it's up to you. And then he goes back to the Proverbs. We've been reading through the Proverbs on Wednesday night. And he quotes directly out of Proverbs 25, starting at verse 21. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The Lord will reward you for doing what is right. How often have you heard me say through the years, just do the next right thing. Whatever the next right thing is, do that. In every decision you make in life, whatever you're going through in life, just just take the time to figure out, is this the correct thing? Is this the right thing to do? You can't think about what you're going to do a week from now. You can't even really think about what you're going to do an hour from now. But you can think about right now. And right now, do the next right thing. And so Paul says, the next right thing when dealing with your enemy is to go ahead and feed them if they're hungry. If they're thirsty, give them some water. But recognize as you're doing it that the vengeance of God rests on them. You can afford to be kind to them, to take pity on them, because the vengeance of God is resting on them. And by you doing what God said for you to do, The writer of Proverbs, Solomon, and Paul quoting it in the New Testament says, by you doing the next right thing, you're really just pouring coals on their head. But that's God's job to pour those coals. Your job is to be good. Your job is to feed them. Your job is to be kind to them. 
Your job is to be patient with them. Verse 21, the end of the chapter, and we're done for the morning, sums it all up. Everything Paul's been saying so far can be summed up in this phrase. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Do the good. Do the right. Do the things that bring peace. Those are the things that you are called to do. Okay, so I began today by saying, now that you've heard it, now that you know it's in here, now that you've read it, now that you know this is what the Bible says, you're responsible for it. Now that you know that's what it says, if you say you're a Christian, if you wear the t-shirt that says, I'm a Christian, if you walk around saying to people, I'm a Christian, if you say you believe in God and you believe in the Bible, then this is how you are instructed to be according to God's word. If you're not like this, it is tantamount to a denial that you actually think that's God's word. If God showed up right now, if an angel showed up right now and said to you, here's what I want you to do, you'd go, okay, oh, I'll do it. Oh, yeah, you're an angel. I'm, I'm there. Okay, you got the very word of God right here saying how to be, what to do. You are now responsible for it. Because the Bible not only says soteriological things. The Bible not only says this is how people get saved. The Bible also says now that you are saved, act like it. And that is incumbent on every single one of us. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Now next week, we get to chapter 13, and Paul is going to talk about our standing before governments. So how we deal with the church, how we deal with those outside the church who persecute us, and then next week, how we deal with the world system, the government, such as it is. And Paul is going to give us solutions to every one of those situations. And that's how we ought to be. Grab a hymnal and turn to 61. We are going to sing, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. Come on up here, musicians and Steve.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.